Grape Minds, a wine-centric podcast where two wine-loving friends take a look beyond what's in the glass. We dig a little deeper into the stories, the culture, and the history behind the wine. We even drink a little wine while we're doing it. I'm Julie Glenn. Besides drinking or tasting the wine, my favorite part is being able to sit down with those who make it all happen. And when we talk about making it all happen, at least in Northern California, and putting the wines from there uh, on the international map, the story has to include Chateau Montalena. Julie, you visited the property, right? I did. It's been a few years ago, and it's one of many wineries that I've gone to that my daughter still remembers, and she was four when we went there. Oh, wow. I mean, it's just a beautiful property. You roll up on that estate, and it's just it, there's something magical about it. The gardens, uh, the chateau is magnificent. I remember one time we were able to go down into the cellar, and I actually got to put my hand on the Holy Grail. A 1973 bottle of Chardonnay. I touched it. I got to go to the event that they had uh, with Naples Winter Wine Festival a couple years ago where mm-hmm. they had Chardonnay for for multiple years. It was really awesome to get to try the oldies, which were standing up mm-hmm. wonderfully. Good, good, good. So we are so honored to have with us on Great Minds today, Matt Crafton. He is the winemaker at Chateau Montalena. Iconic from a historical perspective, but it's also much more than the judgment of Paris and Bottle Shock. Matt has been focusing on bringing Montalena forward into the new generation while respecting and nurturing the ethos that blazed a trail of quality winemaking. Um, I might not use the word blazed this year. This is not the year for blazed. <laughs> oh, sorry. It might not be the word we want. Hey, Matt, how's it going? Hey, good morning. How are you guys doing? Good, good, good. So a little bit about your history with this vineyard. So you've been with Chateau Montalena since uh, 2008? That's right. And you've t- kind of taken the helm, not kind of, but you have taken the helm uh, since 2014. How did you get to Chateau Montalena in the first place? It was, uh, it was a long, winding path. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually, <laughs> I'm from Virginia originally, grew up there. And um, after graduating from the University of Virginia, decided that I did not want to go to work in finance and thought that taking a $6 an hour job in, the, in a barrel cellar at a Virginia winery might be something to help me figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And kind of that started my career in, in winemaking. And um, over the course of you know, a number of different wineries, working in regions, different regions around uh, the country, uh, grad school at UC Davis, I uh, finally found myself at Chateau Montalena in 2008. So it was, um, I wouldn't say it was a direct path, but it was a fun one. And I think uh, most people can appreciate that. I think anybody who would land at uh, on those doorsteps would, would be happy as well. I mean, like you said, it, I'm, if, no matter how circuitous the route was, the fact that you are there now is, is, is pretty special. Absolutely. It was, uh, I, I remember I was just finishing up grad school in 2008 and we were all trying to find jobs and I remember uh, Bo hiring me to be the enologist at the time and he had this I don't, you guys probably remember the movie The Princess Bride mm-hmm. if you remember the uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts scene where he's like you know uh, good night Wesley good job today uh, have a good rest and I'll probably kill you in the morning <laughs> well Bo is like uh, you seem like a nice enough kid you seem pretty smart I'll keep you for a year, and then I'll probably fire you. And I was just, <laughs> and I was just at the time, I was like, great, I have a job for a year. That's fantastic. So a that's a year is a long began. time when you're young, right? It is. 
So uh, I'm a few years past uh, year one, and um, but certainly it's been a great ride. Yeah, I would say you, you've uh, earned your stripes a little bit there and, and proven your worth. So let's talk about um, the Chardonnay. We've got uh, some of it in front of us now, but and I know that this is one of the wines that's really put you guys on the map initially, and it's been um, many decades ago, but it was back in 1976 in the Judgment of Paris, and um, you know, Julie and I were talking about this off the air about Chardonnay and how there's a love hate for it. And, and, uh, I don't know, just tell us, give us your impressions on it. Well, there's only love here for Chardonnay. <laughs> I can tell you that. And I think, uh, yeah, that was, that was before my time, obviously I, I wasn't around when the judgment of Paris took place. But if you know the history, um, about Montalena and about Chardonnay in general, I think, well, some of your, your listeners may know it, but kind of a brief synopsis is that you know, there really wasn't much Chardonnay growing in the Napa Valley back in the early 70s. There was actually more Riesling uh, than Chardonnay, ironically. And when Jim Barrett uh, purchased Montalena in uh, 1971 and they needed to replant our you know, beautiful and uh, really incredible estate vineyard, uh, they needed cash, and white grapes are great for cash flow. And so releasing a, a Riesling early, followed by a Chardonnay, was really just meant to help you know, pad the coffers a little bit to allow the team here to replant uh, this vineyard. And so I don't think anyone really expected it to turn out the way it did, but it's led to this really fascinating legacy where we have you know, one foot in this a very Burgundian world of Chardonnay, and that has its own ethos and you know, sense of style and winemaking, um, winemaking techniques. And then on the other side, we live in a very Bordelais-driven world, just like you know how Napa Valley is in general, very Cabernet-driven. And so, um, I think what it's done for Montalena specifically is that it's it's helped us to you know maintain our creativity and maintain our focus uh, in multiple disciplines. And it's, uh, I can tell you that kind of the, the hallmark of those wines from the 70s and up through today was this, just this really strong sense of creativity and uh, this willingness to try things that are new. And it was funny, when I took over as winemaker in 2014, you know, half-jokingly, I was wondering if, if Bo is going to you know, open the safe and show me the master recipe <laughs> for the 73 Chardonnay, and of course I knew that wasn't the case, but obviously been working here for a while and knew that it was, it was less about, that there was nothing, nothing here at Montalena is formula driven at all. And so it's more about understanding the, the potential of the wine, the potential of the vintage, the potential of the vineyard itself, and then you know, figuring out how to articulate that in a way that's not only delicious, but also ageable. So it's that kind of philosophical bent, I think, that we've inherited over the last 40-plus years. And over those 40-plus years, Chardonnay's gone through, as a, as a grape and as a California grape, uh, many, many different iterations. Uh, how hard is it to keep that consistency in style and then also be able to present a new face to a new generation of wine drinkers? Because in 76, people who are born in 76 are drinking now. That's right. So uh, that's a really good question, too. Um, I think the way we look at this is it's less about uh, stylistic consistency and, and more about um, it's more about creating wine, again, that is uh, you know, in incredibly dynamic, very appealing. But at the end of the day, it has to be delicious. And so if I could 
kind of explain that a little bit is that when, when I think of consistency, I think of you know making making scalable Coca-Cola recipe-driven wine from an economic sense that allows you to, I don't know, take over market share. And that's never really what Monoland has been about. Instead, it's been about finding the right vineyards that can you know, create something that's very unique, um, something that is emblematic of our unique properties, but then doing it in a way that meets those two goals of, of not only Again, being ageable, which is something that I think Monolane has been known for for a very long time, but the wine has to taste really good now. And we've, we've been able to engender that sense of understanding that, you know, the 2017 Chardonnay is going to taste different from the 18, it's going to taste different from the 16, but there will be a common thread of Montalena character that weaves through. So maybe it's that, maybe in the cooler years, it's it's more citrus and pear and apple on the aromas. And in the warmer vintages, it tends to be more stone fruit, um, more ripe character, more melon, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And, and so we really focus on how do we accentuate that. So I think that maybe the, the characteristic of Montalena that makes Montalena is that you have to be excited about not necessarily the unexpected, but just knowing that you're going to get an incredibly amazing bottle of wine that um, isn't necessarily going to taste like what we made last year, but it's going to have all the characteristics that hopefully you enjoy. And that's going to, the way they manifest themselves upon release and over time is, uh, is again, one of those things that I think sets us apart from everybody else. It's a very kind of like, it's an exciting, dynamic atmosphere here. It's going to be the best expression of what you have in that given year that's okay. going to be in that bottle. So, we go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say it. I think you've heard people say that before, I'm sure. You see that in every shelf talker or <laughs> yeah. marketing brochure. And I think it's, it's easy to pay lip service to it. I mean, but here we really do it. Um, so we'll change how we, how we, you know, when we pick, uh, you know, how we press, how we ferment, the barrels we use. All those things vary based on how we're looking forward to what that wine can be in the future. And so you have to make wine on a relatively small scale to do that. And you have to have people who are interested in, again, flexing that sense of right brain creativity. Um, Otherwise, it can get somewhat maddening. We have the 2018 in front of us. So based on how you were describing the different vintages and and how you approach things stylistically, let's talk about the current vintage. Sure. So 2018 in general, we we would describe as a, you know, a moderate to warm kind of classic California vintage. And so what I mean by that is we're getting relatively warm uh, daytime temperatures, a fair amount of fog in the morning where we grow the Chardonnay and Oak Knoll, but we're getting the cool temperatures at night to promote and to retain the acidity that allows the wine to not only be balanced when you taste it, but also to age. And so when we start to see those conditions coming together, we're looking for flavors in the fruit, again, that lean a little bit more on the mature and ripe side. So you'll notice on the aromas, the aromatic side, the wine's going to be very floral. It's going to have you know, lavender, rose. It's also going to have some more mature stone fruit. And, and that'll continue to evolve over time, not only in your glass right now, but also as you lay the wines down. And so you know, along those lines as well, when we, when we harvest, we make the decision how much of the fruit do we whole cluster press. That gives us another, you know, a specific flavor profile in these kinds of vintages versus destemming and crushing. And then obviously fermentation temperatures, barrels, all of those, 
incremental decisions over time that are basically one-way doors eventually lead to the final product. And so we have to make those in real time relatively quickly. So it's important to have not only the perspective of what we've done in the past to say, this is, you know, let's say the 2018 is similar to the 2014 vintage. We did this and it worked, or we did this and it didn't work. How can we improve on that? But then also looking forward and saying, well, from a maturity standpoint, where do we want this wine to be in five years or 10 years? In my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> in, my, in my glass right in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, let me go and divert right into wine geek territory here. You mentioned I the difference. We already there. So. Okay. <laughs> no, full geek. I mean, we're putting on the glasses and the pocket okay. protector here. What is What ends up being the difference uh, with Chardonnay when you go for whole cluster versus destemming? Yeah, so for us, the whole cluster tends to be um, tends to be much more uh, much more light and ethereal on the palate. Uh, the aromatics, I think, tend to again lead more towards some of that floral character. Um, when we destem, the the fruit gets a little bit more skin contact, and so you end up with a little more richness and suppleness on the palate. And a certain some of the Chardonnay clones that we grow benefit from that slight amount of skin, or, yeah, slight amount of skin contact, and they help release some of those really beautiful, like, you know, muscat and musquet kind of characters mm-hmm. that you only get in certain growing seasons, like warmer ones like that. So it's about taking that great berry, which, you know, is just literally a ball of DNA, and then figuring out how to decode it. You know, what's the potential here? And it's about saying that the last thing we want to do is pound a square peg through a round hole. It's, it's, there's a lot of potential here in this very simple, innocent grape berry. You know, what can we do to tease that out? And I have a fantastic team, it's a small team, just a couple of us, but who really live and breathe that as well. And so we're, we're really set up to be extremely flexible, extremely agile in terms of, you know, how we do our winemaking. And every single barrel, every single lot gets its own specific treatments and taken care of a certain way as we're trying to build this really beautiful mosaic of a wine. I'm not done talking about the Chardonnay, but I but you just got me thinking about um, the vineyards. And I know you're doing some redesigning and replanting. Um, is a lot of that, any of that having to do with global warming and and where we are currently? Or is it just it was time the vines are getting old? Or what, what's, what's currently happening in the vineyards? So the Bordelais would say that you really need three plantings on a piece of ground before you know what you have. And that's really kind of where we are with the Montalena estate here is that, you know, the original plantings in the 1970s, they, we planted the best way we could in the seventies with the knowledge we had and with the farming uh, techniques and equipment that we had. And then we went through a series of replants in, in the, um, well, that was in the seventies. And then we went back, went through another series of replants in the nineties and so now we're getting into that third stage. So, and you have to remember, you know, vineyards, well-maintained vineyards can last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, even longer in some varieties. Um, so it's kind of, we move at a glacial pace. We're not necessarily thinking about what's gonna happen tomorrow. We're trying to think about, well, what's the best we can do with the knowledge we have to make sure this vineyard is successful for the next 50 years. And so, you know, some of that, like you said, is, is understanding that you know, optimal row orientation rootstocks to hedge against things like drought, or if the if the you know the the daytime heat turns excessive, how do we how do we mitigate that? So I, I would say that for the most part, well, 
the goal, of course, is to produce the, the highest quality fruit that we can. But we're not blind to the elements, and we're certainly not blind to you know, advancements in, in research, understanding of weather, climate, and all those things that go into it. And so for us, it's about you know, trying to make a good decision now that sets this vineyard, this, this winery, on the path to, to future success. So it's, um, it's a ton of responsibility. It's just it's a matter of not being able to predict the future, right? You just do your right. best to mitigate what you know now. You mentioned the elements. Let's talk about the fires. How did they affect you? Well, um, so thankfully we're still here. Uh, thankfully, none of our vineyards burned. Uh, none of the our wineries certainly didn't. Um, but we did lose all of our red grapes for uh, 2020. So we didn't pick any mm. Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Zinfandel, Cabernet Franc. Um, we won't be making any red wines this year. So that's sad. And that wasn't due to fire um, directly. That was due to, due to smoke. And we made that decision pretty early on uh, when the first fire, the LNU fire, blew up early in the season. We'd had some experience, uh, unfortunately, with you know, smoke and fires being close by and Tubbs Fire in 17 and then working with some fruit from back in 2008 when I first started from up in Mendocino. So we were, we understood that Smoke taint is something that cannot be solved, at least right now it can't. And thankfully, I have really great ownership here at the Barrett's and a really remarkable CEO, Bo Barrett, who understood the concept of sunk cost. And we, we made the decision that we weren't going to spend any more money harvesting fruit that we knew would be compromised. And, um, you know, I don't think that was the case for everybody in the Valley. Um, I'm hoping that there are some pockets where people were able to escape, but I can tell you that the fires were close enough to us. And, you know, the, the analysis we've done has borne this out, that we wouldn't have been able to make wine anywhere near the quality that we expect for ourselves or our customers expect of us uh, from our red grapes um, this year. Well, Matt, I got to yeah. be honest. Uh, the numbers twenty yeah. and twenty um, are not going to be popular with a lot of people. <laughs> I, I, yeah, so that, I think that's the other piece of it. And the good news I'll tell you is that our Chardonnay we were able to harvest before the fires, and it's you know the yields were down. That wasn't really that was more of a vintage thing rather than a fire issue. But uh, what we do have is is really quite remarkably good. Um, we were also able to to harvest our Sauvignon Blanc. So harvest was kind of short and sweet this year. And, um, and then kind of bittersweet when it ended. But what we do have in the cave right now that is maturing is uh, really quite delicious. There just isn't very much of it. Is it going to change how you release what you have um, aging right now um, as far as the reds go? You're going to hold it on to them a little will. longer? Or? It, it definitely will. And I'll say that one thing that another thing that's really incredible about Montalena is that over the last you know, 30 years, we've built up a, a, a very large, deep and broad library of, uh, of, our, of our state Cabernet um, over time. And so we fully anticipate to have to lean on those reserves a little bit to kind of to meet the demand um, as we've lost an entire vintage. But, you know, the way we look at it is it gives us an opportunity to dust off some of those older bottles that maybe we don't get to taste through often enough and certainly don't get to sell. And um, it'll be great to be able to offer that to our customers and, um, you know, where we've essentially done the aging for you. That would be so exciting for some of your library buyers. I, I think so. And I think that what we've, we, we really try to minimize the markup on that as much as we can. 
so that they are accessible. I mean, don't get me wrong, these are expensive wines, as you know, but we're not, we don't mark them up so crazy that people are buying them and can't afford to drink them. What's current release on the cab? What, what year are you on right now? We're on 2016. Okay. And um, how is that? Give us a quick overview on how that would, I mean, it's just so elegant and lush, I think, uh, or word said, I, I would describe it. What, what would you say about this one? I think that wine's finally starting to taste the way it's supposed to. Uh, 16 was, was, uh, was a cooler vintage for us, and I use cool in, in air quotes, obviously. Um, but the wine really exhibited those characteristics early, and what we've learned with those, these types of vintages is the wines can take a little bit of time to come around. Um, one, of the, one of the things, the programs we've had over the last few years that have been really successful is when we release the, the new Estate Cabernet, we also release uh, a vintage that's a decade previous to that. So with the 2016, we'll also, we also re-released the 2006 in the market. Um, again, sm- smaller quantities, not anywhere near um, you know, what, we re- what the 16 is, but uh, we make those wines available. And just as luck would have it, the 6 and the 16 were, were similar vintages, uh, the 6 being slightly cooler. But uh, the six took a, took a while to come around. I mean, like you said, the wine, it's finally starting to taste, you know, show some of its body. It's starting to show some of its richness. The aromatics are finally starting to pop. It's very dynamic wine. When we released that wine back in January, uh, we were just all waiting to see when that wine was really going to, to come to life. Um, but what we have seen in these cooler vintages is that these wines tend to be extremely long-lived. So 20, 30, 40 years, um, really, that's not out of the question. I'm thinking these days, though, people are just popping the corks. They're not waiting 20, 30 years. God anymore. bless them for it. We're more than happy to support people who do that. I'm one of those people. So I wanted to ask you real quick, uh, for people who are not familiar with Chateau Montalina overall, it's not just Chardonnay and Cab. You have, uh, mm-hmm. you still do a Riesling. you got the Zin and Sauvignon Blanc. Does that comprise everything? Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling, and Zin. Is there a Petite? Um, Bordeaux, Petite Syrah, I think. No, it was the, it was the five you mentioned, and uh, that's one of the great pieces about being family owned is that we can make wines that we like to drink. You know, <laughs> maybe don't contribute a ton to the bottom line, like the Riesling or the Zinfandel. But you know, for us, it's important that we have some wines that are accessible to younger wine consumers who maybe are you're just getting into wine and need to buy a special bottle, but don't want to spend more than, you know, 30 or $40. And I think our, our Sauv Blanc, our Riesling, our oh, Zinfandel in there are really great introductions to the brand that way. I'm telling you what, they're all great. What are you going to put on your Thanksgiving table? Are you going to have some Riesling on there? That's coming up, isn't it? I know, right? Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Riesling is, is, a, is a mainstay every year. And um, it's funny, we actually, we, we bottle up a couple of, a couple of cases and magnums for the staff here. And so it's always a, a magnum of Riesling that goes on the table at my house. And then um, the Zinfandel is always really popular because that's kind of a Swiss army knife of red wine that goes with everything. And whether you're vegetarian or not, or into Turkey or having Chipino, whatever it is, yeah. uh, our Zinfandel is really, uh, it's quite outstanding when it comes to food pairings because it's not super high alcohol, it's more red fruit driven, it's softer, a little bit more lush, and it's a, it's a great wine from that standpoint. And then we'll probably open up an older bottle too while we're at it. We'll open up an older Cabernet or maybe an older Chardonnay for the end of the night. So 
Lots of alcohol in my house. <laughs> As I, it should be. I love Swiss Army Night of red wine. It's the best. That. I'm stealing we, can that we get, Can we use that? Will you license Absolutely. that out to us? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we were talking about Chardonnay over the holidays, and uh, we I mentioned earlier that there are people who have a love-hate because they haven't found the good ones or the ones that they love. And, and to me, this one, the Chateau Montalene, and, and specifically the one we're drinking now, the 2018, has everything in a in it that I think a Chardonnay has. It's got some mouthfeel. It's got great acidity. It's got good fruit. And I just poured myself another glass just for the I'm record. I'm going to as well, but I mean, <laughs> I just can't reach it from where I'm sitting. <laughs> Otherwise, that's, that's I'd be waiting. That's totally the goal. And like, I'm glad you brought that up because literally when we're finishing the blend on that wine, and we do this with every wine, you know, we go through and we totally geek out on it and go through all kinds of weird nebulous descriptors and break the wine down into its, you know, component pieces in our minds. But we're always like, well, do you want a second glass of it? Mm-hmm. If you don't <laughs> want to both. Glass, then we haven't done our jobs, right? I mean, that was in stereo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, second glass for and, sure. And it's easy to it's easy to miss that. And um, you know, I, I really appreciate how much you you enjoy the wine. I think that's something that is easily missed in a lot of California Chardonnays nowadays, which is you know, there's a lot of very like correct wines. Like, yep, technically that's Chardonnay, and up, yep, there's the oak, and there's the butter, there is whatever. In our wines, you don't get that. I mean, mm-hmm. the, what really is the showstopper, the, action, the the star of the show, is the vintage, is the vineyard. And we work really hard to make sure that, you know, we're not plastering it over with something that will make it taste like every other wine out there. We're really happy and excited that our wine is different. Well, we're happy and excited about we're it. So, and I'm wondering how your 2008 self would view where you're sitting right now. Good one. Oh gosh, that's a. Never thought about that before. I don't know. I think. I don't know if I would have considered. If you told me in 2008 that I'd be sitting here in 2020, I'm not sure I would have believed you. Uh, at that point, I was I was young and really ambitious and thought I was going to take over the world. And I think I've uh, come to my senses a little bit in understanding that the way to succeed isn't necessarily by you know bouncing around from place to place and, you know, trying to put my stamp on everything. It's about building something lasting. And it's not only not only that in the wine, but also uh, in the people here and our team here and mentoring our young people and, and hopefully helping to build the success for, for Montalena and the, you know, 40 families that depend on Montalena for their livelihood. So I think... I'd be, uh, hopefully, if I'd be proud of myself, but I also, I would have been nervous, too, because it's a tremendous responsibility, and one that I take really seriously. Yeah, I think it's, that's, I got goosebumps. I'm going to tell you, I did. That was a really great summary of uh, the responsibility that you know that you have, but also the joy in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Matt Crafton, again, is the winemaker at Chateau Montalena. And we just uh, appreciate you taking time out. Uh, I guess um, you have a little time right now, unfortunately, because. <laughs> but we we appreciate it nonetheless, and we look forward to you uh, seeing you and, and drinking some wines with you in person so, sometime soon. Thank you so much for your time. This has been really enjoyable, and thanks to all of your listeners that support us. We really do appreciate it, and we uh, we definitely won't let you down. That is true. <laughs> that is true. The wine is darn good. Thank you so much. 
Great Minds is produced at WGCU Studios on FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Our producer for online media is Tara Callaghan. Great Minds theme music is from Kansas City band Victor and Penny. The song is You'd Be So Nice to Come Home To by Cole Porter. And wouldn't a nice... Chardonnay. Chateau Montalena would be nice to come home to as well. To get in touch with us, check out greatminds.org or call the Grapevine and ask a wine question that we can address on a future show. That number is 707-200-3632. Thanks for listening. Be so nice to